Hospitality, it's a nice word, isn't it? Has a very pleasant connotation to it, the word hospitality. I wonder if we fully appreciate, as we should at all times, how important hospitality is in the spiritual realm. In the New Testament, it is placed as a premium in terms of being the kind of Christian that one must be or should be. Man can't be an elder in the Lord's church without being hospitable. In both 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, where the qualifications for elders and deacons are listed there, hospitality is there. Something that is vitally important in the Lord's church. And tonight, we're going to look at a one-chapter epistle, as we did two weeks ago on a Sunday night when we looked at 2 John, another one-chapter epistle. Tonight, we're going to look at 3 John, comprised of just 14 verses, one of the four one-chapter epistles in the New Testament. And it places a very important premium on hospitality and tells us just how important it is for us to be hospitable, not only for the good that it does for us in being hospitable, but for the practical good that is done for those toward whom we extend that hospitality, especially in the context of extending that hospitality and encouraging those who are workers in the kingdom of God, those who are teaching and preaching the word of God. That's the context in which 3 John is written. It is a great treatise on the subject of hospitality. And so let's look at these 14 verses and see among other things, just how important genuine hospitality, Christian hospitality is in any age. But it was especially important in New Testament times because of the circumstances in which preachers and teachers who were traveling, evangelists, those circumstances with which they had to deal. And where there were not Motel 60s or Super 8s or whatever the case might be, and so they were much more dependent upon hospitality that involved really opening up your homes than perhaps we are today. But that does not say that the opening of our homes should not be something that we should be more than willing to do, and certainly to share the wonderful hospitality that is enjoined upon us by the apostle of love here in this third epistle. It begins with the words with which the second epistle began, the elder. And as we mentioned when we studied Second John, older is the idea here. Not specifically the office of elder, but the way the word is given here and the way it is used, it is the older. And John, if this epistle was written when most commentators think it was, around A.D. 90 or so, he was an old man at this time probably written from where he lived in his later years, and that was believed to be the city of Ephesus. And so he writes to an individual, and he has done it in the second epistle, as we looked at last time, to the elect lady. Man, we said that word lady is literally Syria, C-Y-R-I-A, indicating a proper name is under consideration by John in that second letter, and to her children. But this time it is to a man named Gaius. 
and we are not able to identify Gaius as being associated with another Gaius mentioned in Scripture. There are four that are mentioned in Scripture, but we have no reason to believe that this Gaius was any one of the total of four here, but that it was a common name in New Testament times. And if you'll notice, the word beloved is in the very first verse, to the beloved Gaius. And so there was obviously a warm and tender relationship that existed between the Apostle John, the Apostle of Love, and this man Gaius. He loved him. He had deep appreciation for him. And the word beloved is there in verse 1. You see it again in verse 2. You drop down to verse 5 and you see the word beloved again. You go over to verse 11 and you see the word beloved again. In 14 short verses, the, vor- the word beloved is used, is used four times. And so this man obviously had a special place in John's heart because of his love, Gaius' love that is, for the truth and for the action that he took based upon his belief in the truth. And we'll talk more about that as we go forward and look at these verses. To the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. The idea being, whom I truly love. You go back to verse 1 of the second epistle. And just flip back there to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth. Same thing is said to Gaius, whom I love in truth. That is, whom I love truly. Whom I love sin. Sincerely. And obviously that love could not be separated from Gaius' love for the truth and John's love for the truth. They had a common bond. They had the most common and precious bond, but precious beyond uh, any other relationship. That was a common bond, that is a like bond, because they both were lovers of God and followers of God and followers of Jesus Christ. Now notice what his wish for and prayer for, Gale- for Gaius is in verse 2. Beloved, he said, I pray, my prayer for you is that you may prosper in all things and be in health, but notice this, just as your soul prospers. And in that statement, we have a barometer, if you will, as to how we can prosper physically and financially, And it has to be tied to how we prosper spiritually. In other words, John does not say, I wish, my prayer for you is that you will be the richest man on earth. My prayer for you is that you'll be the, uh, that you'll be the healthiest individual on earth. Obviously, he was concerned about his physical health, but his primary concern and the barometer, if you will, for physical and financial health is spiritual health. I want you to prosper and be in health but I want, it to be, I want it to be in keeping with the most important thing of all in your life, Gaius, and that is your spiritual prosperity. And it simply reminds us that the most important thing in our lives is not how much money we can make, how much power we can acquire. No, it is also not about physical health, though in, physical health is vitally important to us all, and we certainly want to be healthy, but... But which is better, to be healthy and never have to make a doctor's visit, never spend a day in the hospital, and yet to be spiritually poor, or to be bedridden 
for much of your life and yet be spiritually rich. You know, when I say that, I think about Bob Sperlin. I think about our brother in Christ, Bob Sperlin, down in Alabama, who has been bedridden for I don't know how many years with the most progressive and acute form of multiple sclerosis that one can have. You know what they call him? The horizontal preacher. The horizontal preacher, because he is bedridden, but he is spiritually prospering. And he has dealt with that challenge very effectively. He has written more than one book to encourage others to be faithful to the Lord regardless of the physical circumstances in which one finds himself or herself. And so I just think of Bob when I think about how, though Bob is not physically well at all, he is spiritually prospering. And because he is, when this life ends... If he remains faithful unto death, all that physical illness will be a thing of the past. It'll all be gone. And then he says, in verse 3, writes, For I rejoiced greatly when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you, just as you walk in the truth. Now, again, truth is a key word in John's epistles. We see it emphasized five times back in Second John. The word truth is used. The word love is used four times. The word commandment is used four times there. But here again, he stresses the importance of what? A truth? Some truth? No, the truth. Showing that the gospel is a specific pattern that can be known and must be followed. And that the religious division that tragically permeates our society today is a, is a division that is not God-made, but man-made, and that we need to unite upon the truth and not the creeds and traditions of men. And we must walk in that truth. In other words, it's a continual process. I rejoice greatly when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you, which tells me that the truth can be, must be, and should be in us, and when it is in us, we must act upon it and continue to walk in it. In other words, it's an ongoing activity. And then he adds in verse 4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. And this may be an indication that Gaius was a convert of the Apostle John and that he had actually been responsible for teaching him the truth and for Gaius' obeying the truth. Then we have that word beloved again in verse 5. Beloved, he says, you do faithfully whatever you do for the brethren and for strangers. That brings us now specifically to the theme, if you will, of this short but powerful epistle, hospitality. Gaius was an individual who was known for his hospitality. He was known for furthering the work of those who came through his city and to his home for furthering their work, both of brethren and for strangers. And the indication here is not strangers who were not following the truth, but the contrast in verse 5 apparently is between brethren whom he knew and with whom he labored and worshipped wherever Gaius lived, but also for brethren who were not a part of that group where he worshipped, 
but for brethren who came through where he lived and thus were characterized as strangers. Not strangers in the sense that they were disobedient to the truth. No, indeed. They were brethren, but brethren who were not known to him, brethren with whom he did not live and work. And even though he didn't know those brethren, they were still his brethren. Because fellowship extends beyond the borders of four walls in in a church building. Fellowship extends to all those who are what? Obedient to the truth and walking in that truth. And whether Gaius knew them personally or not was of no significance. If they were walking in the truth and teaching the truth, when they came to him, he made sure they had what they needed and furthered their journey so that they could continue to preach and teach that truth. And as we mentioned earlier, that was vitally, vitally important in the early church because they were dependent upon Christian homes and Christian finances, Christian encouragement to enable them to continue to do their work. John does not take lightly the importance of that extension of hospitality on the part of Gaius. In fact, he commends it highly. And then he says, who have borne witness of your love before the church. The indication here is that I've heard from some of these very people who have traveled teaching and preaching the gospel as they have come here. I have heard from them about what you did for them when they came to you. They have borne witness of your love before the church. Now notice something. What was Gaius doing? What was Gaius doing? He was encouraging these preachers and teachers. He was no doubt helping them financially. He was helping them on their journey. He was feeding them. He was housing them as opportunity presented itself to do that. And John characterized that as the kind of love that must characterize every child of God. Not a love that says, go your way, be warmed and filled, but a love that says, come on in and let me do what I can to help you on your journey and to encourage you in your work. In other words, love must act. Love must be demonstrated by our actions. And so he says, who have borne witness of your love, verse 6, before the church, if you send them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God, you will do well. Well, what was it that they normally did in extending this kind of hospitality that John speaks of here? Well, obviously, they would send them forward on their journey, and, and it was customary for the host who had put up the individual, say for the night or whatever length of time, and had fed him to assist financially, if possible, with money. But literally, when the man, the preacher, left the home, it was customary for the host to actually go with him, physically go with him for a little ways to help him on his journey, literally to assist him by going with him for uh, a distance. And one could see where that would be a very generous and nice thing to do. You're leaving, but I'm going to leave with you, walk with you, visit with you for a while as I see you off. And so it was not goodbye, be warmed and filled, and out the door. It was out the door with that individual according to the customs of the day. Financial assistance was certainly involved, as well as the sustenance that they needed and the housing that was so necessary then. And so it was go and give. That was what was commendable among 
those brethren. And Gaius was known for that kind of hospitality. And so he goes on, you will do well because they went forth. You'll do well to encourage them in every way. You'll do well to give money to them. You'll do well to feed them. You'll do well to house them. You, do, you will do well to bid them Godspeed in every way. And that was what was involved in that. Because they went forth for his name's sake. Who is the his here? Jesus Christ, his name's sake. Taking nothing from the Gentiles. In other words, Gaius, what you have done and continue to do is to help gospel preachers to continue to go forth for his namesake. And what is involved in his namesake? What is involved in his namesake is to make sure they are preachers who are not only claiming to preach for Christ, they are proving that they preach for Christ because they are preaching for his namesake, which includes everything that the Lord Jesus Christ ever taught and ever authorized others to teach. Remember Colossians 3.17? Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Meaning what? As we've said before, it means by his authority. So these preachers who went forth for his namesake were going authoritatively, that is, they were going preaching the gospel, nothing more, nothing less, and everything that that involved. But notice this important statement in verse 7. Taking nothing from the Gentiles. Taking nothing from the Gentiles. In other words, their support came not from those to whom they preached, but their support came from their brethren. Has that changed or should it have changed? Never. You know, from time to time on the Good News Today television program, we will specifically state on that program that we offer a free Bible correspondence course. We'll be glad to send you material. We have the Something is Wrong, but the Bible is Right tract and other materials that we can send. Free non-denominational Bible correspondence courses. We mention those things. We deal with questions and answers. But any, anything we offer is always offered absolutely free, always will be, never will change. And when someone responds, that individual will never be asked for one penny. And we oftentimes express that because that is not the norm among uh, televangelists as they are called. But that is the biblical approach. And that's what we see right here. These preachers of the gospel did not charge people for the gospel. They did not charge the ones to whom they were preaching to pay for what they were hearing. Brethren who had already heard and obeyed the gospel were the ones who were charged with doing that and privileged to do that and commended for so doing. And so as long as the Good News Today television program or any program by our brethren is aired if they're doing what God would want them to do, will never, never allow those or ask those to whom they preach to pay for hearing it. Never, never. And here's a precedent for it. If we needed a precedent, we've got others on the first day of the week, 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2. Those who are members of the body of Christ to give, are to give on the first day of the week. We don't ask those who are not members of the body of Christ to give, but those who are members of the body of Christ give 
on the first day of the week to advance the work of the church, which includes preaching the gospel. And we never charge those to whom it is preached, never will. And that's what John reminds Gaius of, that you as a brother in Christ are doing what a brother in Christ should do because we're not going to ask those who haven't obeyed the gospel to pay for what we are giving them. The gospel is free. It's free and makes one free, incidentally, doesn't it? And so they went forth for his name's sake, taking, taking nothing from the Gentiles. Then verse 8 he says, We therefore ought to receive such. In other words, we ought to do what you're doing, Gaius, in receiving these who are preaching the gospel, helping them financially, helping them in every way to keep doing what they're doing because they're not going to take these things from the Gentiles, that is, those out here in the world. They're not going to do that. So we need you, Gaius, and others like you. And the church still does, needs brothers and sisters in Christ to do the same thing. Now notice, though, how he characterizes those who do that members of the church, that is, who help others and spread the gospel by doing what Gaius did. We therefore ought to receive such that we may become fellow workers for the truth. Can everybody go where Adam and Megan Evans are in Tanzania? Can everybody just pick up and take off to Tanzania for a long time as they have done, sacrificed to do, or as other missionaries among us have done? No. But when we help them to do that by making it possible for them to go and to stay and to live, we are, according to John the Apostle, fellow workers for the truth. No question about it. No question about it. Now, does that mean that as long as I'm willing to give for somebody else to go, I don't have any other responsibility to ever tell anybody else about the gospel of Christ? No, that's taking it too far. That's going too far to the other extreme. Obviously, we're all to be evangelistic. We're all to do what we can to teach others and live for others and before others in a way to bring them to Christ. But the point is, there are some things that we are limited in doing that others can do, but we can help them to do it. And when we do, we become fellow workers for the truth. Isn't that exciting? Shouldn't it be? To know that you are a fellow worker for the truth. And do you realize how much truth you are fellow workers with here in this congregation this very night? How many mission efforts, how many precious souls have been or will be or are now being reached because of this congregation? Oh, I could spend a lot of time with that. Well, we're in Singapore with Four Seas College of the Bible. $400 a month going to the Peter Chin family, the, the head of that school, and bringing people in from Southeast Asia and all sorts of uh, areas around there, that area to train, to go back into their home areas and preach and teach the gospel. How many souls will be reached because of the $400 a month that White Oak gives? Or, or what about the 300 a month that goes to Tasmania to the Brett Rutherford family and how many souls will be reached there. And on and on and on we could go. And good news today, in the television program that reaches who knows how many souls on several commercial stations, but on the Internet. And, and the Internet is the World Wide Web. And that's why we get responses from 
overseas. And the international Bible teaching ministries near Cookville. And if we get a Bible student that wants to enroll by email in a Bible course in Nigeria or wherever, all we do is just say, you can go to this particular site and international uh, Bible teaching ministries. They have hundreds upon hundreds of students already enrolled, and we can add our students to them, and we do that. And so they're able to work with us on that. And if you ever see their newsletter, you'll see how many hundreds of baptisms have been recorded through that work alone, which we support $400 a month. On and on and on we could go. You are fellow workers for the truth. No question about it. And then verse 9. Well, let me go back to something here and brought out, bring out a contrast here with that. By sending them forth and helping them financially, you're a fellow worker for the truth. But remember what John wrote in the previous epistle in Second John, verse 11, when he warned Syria, the lady, when he said, well, let's go back to verse 9 of Second John. Whoever transgresses, and this is the New King James, of course, and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ, does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ. Remember we said that's not the doctrine about Christ that just says, well, yeah, I believe in Christ. That's the doctrine that Christ himself taught and authorized, which is all of the New Testament. But he says, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine... Do not receive him into your house, nor greet him, for he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. Now, by greeting, we said last time that it doesn't mean you say hello. Even though he's a false teacher, you say hello, then that you shouldn't do that. No, you can be cordial and courteous, uh, and should be. But the greeting there involves what we're talking about here. Greeting in the sense of what Gaius was doing. Greeting in the sense of bringing this man in, giving him money perhaps, walking with him as he leaves and saying to him, Godspeed. You can't do that when truth is not being preached. And so the contrast is, you're either a fellow worker for the truth or you're a fellow worker against it. And who wants to be in that category? So we have to make sure that our support is for faithful preachers and in supporting them, we become fellow workers with them, in contrast to what John warned about in the second epistle to that good Christian lady there. Now he says in verse 9, I wrote to the church, that is the church where you are, Gaius, but he says, Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence among them, does not receive us. This Diotrephes was a church boss. That's really about how you can describe him. He was a church boss. He was ruling the roost in this congregation. Whether he was an elder, whether he was the preacher, uh, he's not identified beyond that. But he rejected the authority of John the Apostle, an apostle of Christ, and spoke evil of him. Look at verse 10. Therefore, if I come, I will call to mind his deeds, which he does, prating against us, which is the idea of babbling and talking against John, prating against us with malicious words, and not content with that, 
He himself does not receive the brethren. In other words, he will not receive these brethren, Gaius, that you're receiving in your house. He will not receive them. But beyond that, he forbids those who wish to receive them, putting them out of the church. He's withdrawing fellowship from them. Validly? No. <laughs> of course not. He may be putting them out of the church in his mind, but he's not putting them out of the church in God's mind if they're the right kind of brethren which tells us that withdrawal of fellowship can either be a valid thing or an invalid thing, depending upon whether it's done scripturally. He was doing it unscripturally. And so, in a bridge passage, if you will, between two men with similar-sounding names but very contrasting characters, verse 11 says, Beloved, do not imitate what is evil but what is good. He who does good is of God, but he who does evil has not seen God. And then he introduces us to a man named Demetrius, who is doing good. But in that bridge passage in verse 11, he says, Don't imitate evil, imitate good. He who does good is of God, but he who does evil does not know God. In other words, has not seen him in the sense that he obviously does not know God and does not follow him. But then he introduces us to a contrast, an individual named Demetrius. And it is likely that Demetrius is introduced because Demetrius may have been the bearer of this epistle, bringing it to Gaius, quite possibly. Demetrius has a good testimony from all and from the truth itself, and we also bear witness, and you know that our testimony is true. Now let me ask you, would you like to have a threefold recommendation that we've just read about concerning Demetrius? That's what we have. He has a good testimony from all. Isn't that wonderful? A good testimony from all. And from the truth itself. In other words, his life is in harmony with this book that we now have, that they didn't have in its complete form when John wrote that epistle, but we have it now. And the truth testifies of our faithfulness. In other words, we compare our lives to the New Testament, and if there's disharmony, then we need to change something. If there's harmony, then it itself becomes a witness for our good character. And then he says, and thirdly, we also bear witness. John brings himself into the picture and says, I know him too. So you couldn't ask for a better recommendation about anyone who's a Christian than to say he has a good testimony from all, from the truth itself, and John throws himself in as an apostle of Christ who recommends this man. And then he closes in the last two verses. I had many things to write, but I do not wish to write to you with pen and ink. You know, that's very much what he said to the lady in Second John. He wants to speak face to face. He said to her that our joy may be full. He doesn't say that here about the joy being full, but obviously it would be pertinent to Gaius as well. His joy would be full to be able to see this man that he has referred to as beloved four different times in the space of just 14 verses. I hope to see you shortly, and we shall speak face to face. And then he says, peace to you. Oh, those are powerful words. Just three of them. <laughs> But oh, how powerful. Peace to you. And he could wish peace upon Gaius because of the very things that he had said in this very poignant, very powerful, very personal 
letter to this good man. Our friends greet you. And then he says, greet the friends by name. <laughs> That's interesting, isn't it? Greet the friends by name. It's always nice when someone greets you and greets you by name, isn't it? It's nice to know that they know you by name because it's a more personal relationship. John says, greet the friends by name. You know, as you read this epistle and study it briefly, and you see these two men with similar-sounding names, the real issue is which man describes us. Oh, is it Diotrephes? Oh, surely not. But I do know a lot of Demetriuses in here. And I've known those Demetriuses in many other places. And it's always a blessing. It's always a blessing in a gospel meeting or in any such occasion as that to meet those Demetriuses and to know that they want to encourage you in any way they can in your work of teaching and preaching the gospel of Christ. But one thing's for sure, while we may not characterize ourselves as diatrophies, we certainly don't want to be in the same camp as diatrophies, being unfaithful to the truth. We want to be obedient to the truth and live that truth in our lives. And oh, how thankful we can be that we have that truth recorded upon the pages of the New Testament, the last will and testament of Jesus Christ for all time to come which tells us, believe, he says, that I am he in order to become a Christian or die in your sins, John 8, 24. But he doesn't say believe alone. He says repent or perish, Luke 13, 3, and again at verse 5. And then Jesus also said, whoever confesses me before men, him will I also confess before my Father in heaven. Whoever denies me, I will deny before the Father in heaven. But then Jesus also said, he who believes and is baptized will be saved, Mark 16, 16. And in every account of conversion in the book of Acts, every single one culminates with that baptism about which Jesus spoke as being essential. Why? Because in the water, heaven applies the blood that was shed on Calvary, and without that blood, there is no remission of sins. And so he asks us to submit simply to a burial in water where he can apply the blood of his son to cleanse us and to allow us to rise, to walk in newness of life, Romans 6, verses 3 and 4. To be obedient to that form of doctrine, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, Romans 6, 16 through 18. And to call upon the name of the Lord, not by praying, but by obeying, as the Roman letter clearly teaches, and as does the whole of the New Testament. And so tonight, if you would become a part of the kingdom of God, the pre-denominational body of Christ, the church we read about in the New Testament, the pattern for which we must follow if we're to be that church, then it has to be in accordance with the plan that God has given through his son, Jesus Christ. And you can rise from a watery grave of baptism to walk in newness of life, being added to the church by the Lord himself and living and teaching in such a way as to encourage others to do the same so that we can be one in Christ 
and answer the prayer that Jesus prayed so fervently when he said, neither do I pray for these alone, that is the apostles, but for all who will believe on me through their word that they may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be one in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. The prayer of Jesus is answered when we unite upon the word of God and lay aside the creeds and traditions of men. If you haven't done that, we plead with you to do it tonight. If you need to come home to your first love as a child of God who has wandered, we plead with you to come home. Let us pray with you and for you to the God of heaven who will surely forgive as we truly repent. As we stand to sing, will you come?